Welcome to Made in China, Ish, a podcast by Chinese adopted Asian American that discusses racial identity, experiences, insights, and advice. But don't worry if you're not an Asian American adoptee. I think you'll still find something to relate to here. There are a lot of things I wish I was told before I left my hometown and experienced the real world. Well, as real as your freshman year of college can get. All I wanted was to be understood and heard, and that's my goal here—to amplify adopted voices and let people like freshman year me know that you're not alone. So, what's up? My name's Grace Tomlinson, and I'm made in China-ish. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Made in China-ish, the podcast. My name is Grace. I'm your host. A little background about myself that I always like to add in before the beginning of every podcast is that. I was adopted from China at a little over a year old, and I was raised in the Philadelphia suburbs. So let's get to introducing Jade. I had such a great and insightful time sitting down with Jade. She's so eloquently spoken, and I'm so excited for you to hear that in the podcast. But she was adopted from China, as you might have seen in the promotions. She grew up in Melbourne, Florida. So if you're looking at that on a map, it's past Orlando, but before Miami. If you're looking at it from the north to the south. She just graduated from the Boston Conservatory. She studied violin, and now she's about to pursue her master's at Northeastern University, studying public relations. We talk a lot about her upbringing in Florida, what that was like. She actually went to a Buddhist temple growing up, so definitely keep an eye out for that in the podcast. That was really interesting to hear about. But moving from Florida to Boston, I feel like we have a lot of adoptees who move from the southern areas to more. Northern area, so it was really interesting to hear about her perspectives and her experiences moving from the south to the north. So, without further ado, I'm so excited to introduce to you Jade. I know I always say this with every guest that comes on. I know I'm aware, but Jade and just everyone else who's come on this podcast has had so much to say and so eloquently put. I always think to myself, they should just take over this podcast. But for real, I'm so excited for you to hear from Jade. Hello and welcome back to Made in China-ish, the podcast. I'm here with Jade. Jade's name on Instagram is actually Jade Marie, but do you want to introduce your introduce yourself with your full name? I am Jade Maria Alvarez Lauto.、Uh, I am 22 years old and I'm from Melbourne, Florida, currently residing in Boston. That's awesome. And you just graduated, correct? Thank you. I did just this past May with my undergraduate in violin performance and a minor in psychology from the Berkeley、uh, College of Music. Awesome. So, where were you adopted from, and where did you grow up? I was adopted from Anhui, China, when I was eight months old, and it took my parents about nine months to get me back in two thousand. Wow. Okay. So, you grew up in Florida. So, what was that like living in an area that, to you, as we talked earlier,、um, and as you described, wasn't as racially diverse as somewhere like Boston, where you are now? Growing up in Florida was kind of tough. When you're little, like you don't really notice as much, and in preschool, it's not so bad.、Um, but once you start getting to like first and second grade, kids start asking kind of invasive questions. Not because you know they're trying to be mean most of the time, but just because they don't know any better, you know. And there aren't a lot of people that look like me in general. Just a lot of Asian people. Let alone, you know, my parents would come pick me up, and they'd see white parents and. You know, they're like, "Why don't your parents look like you?" And I'd go, "Well, I'm adopted from China." And then they would kind of start with the questions like, "You know, 
Is it because your parents threw you away? Do your parents not love you? You know, why are you here? Like, can you go home? Do you know who they are? And all those questions. And those are really difficult questions to ask of, you know, a seven-year-old. So it kind of is unavoidable and you're really forced to think about where you come from um, in a very intense way from an early age. So for the viewers who may not know, Jade and I actually had the opportunity to talk before we recorded the podcast. And Jade, you actually talked about the bullying that you experienced growing up. So what was that like experiencing all of these external influences and how did that influence your identity? I would definitely say I had a great home life. So when I was with my parents, I was like anybody else. They wanted me to be part of the Asian community. Um, my parents grew up Catholic, but then they wanted to raise me with something else. And so they kind of explored around um, and settled on Buddhism. So I went to Buddhist temple for a while. So I was surrounded by a bunch of, you know, uh, Asian children, but also from Asian families. And so to them, I wasn't quite Asian enough. So in a way, sometimes they would make snide comments to me about my parents being too white or me being whitewashed. Um, so I didn't quite fit in there. And then when I went to school, you know, it was the opposite. I wasn't white enough for the white kids either, which, you know, my area in general just was predominantly white. Um, I got bullied a lot in elementary school, more or less those, you know, kind of petty questions I was just talking about. And they weigh down on you and, you know, you sit there and you think about it and you go, well, mom, why, why am I here? Like, why does no one love me? Like, you know, and especially I know absolutely nothing about my adoption. My adoption, like, I don't, nothing was left for me. I have no files. I don't know my exact birthday. I have nothing. Um, and so there are a lot of open-ended questions and pieces to those puzzles that I'll never have answered. And so people really try to fit you in a box or play the guessing game of, you know, where you're from and why you're here. Um, and for some reason, everybody feels like they get to participate, um, especially when they're young. But I think it becomes more hurtful when you're older and you know that people should know and do know the difference. Um, some people are still just ignorant, uh, especially coming from a conservative town uh, like I did, but some people definitely do it to hurt you. Um, and they'll ask you really basic questions or they'll tell you that you should have been aborted and things like that. And that gets to you too. So I think that the bullying, though it stayed pretty consistent, kind of morphed into a much more intense, much more personal attack. And you couldn't just be like, oh, well, we were seven. It doesn't really matter. When you're older, you take it personally and you're like, it's easier to say, oh, you know, I won't let it get to me and it doesn't matter. Um, but in the end, it does, especially because it's not one or two people. It's a lot of people. Or I even had teachers ask really invasive questions um, during roll call. They would see my last name and be like, well, where are you from in front of the whole class? And I found myself having to explain myself and my whole story to people um, when I definitely didn't want to and wasn't planning on it. But unfortunately, I got used to it. Oh, wow. So that's so interesting. Even though it might have not gone the way that your parents planned, what was it like growing up or having that influence in a Buddhist temple, even though they may not have been as accepting or as influential as your parents may have anticipated? What was that like? I think it was a good experience in general, just because, I mean, I definitely see Buddhism more as a lifestyle than um, a religion in the way that I take it. When people ask me what religion I affiliate with, I just say atheist because it's easier. It's... Um, I don't necessarily, you know, believe in God, but to each their own. And I respect people that do. But I think it was good because it in some way at least connected me to Asian culture. My parents did a very good job of trying to, you know, learn how to make Chinese dishes. And I went to Chinese school for a little bit. 
Um, and going to Buddhist temple, I was surrounded with kids who taught me some things about Buddhism, about Chinese culture, um, art and calligraphy. Um, got to take some kids classes. I went to a Buddhist summer camp every single year from the time I was a baby up until pretty much I left for college. Um, the same camp run by the same people. My parents were actually the first Westerners to ever go to that camp. The entire camp and temple had only been done in Chinese. And then when my parents came, they used to sit in the back and someone would translate for them. Um, and eventually more and more people started joining and my mom would talk to them about what it was like until they ended up actually opening an entire, you know, Western chapter. So all the white people would go in one room and hear, you know, the lectures for the day or, you know, hear about the Diamond Sutra in English and then Chinese would go somewhere else. Um, but it became a lot more inclusive. So I appreciate the fact that my parents really tried to make sure that I knew where I came from and and was able to relate. So in that way, it was good. And honestly, the kids in a Buddhist summer camp and stuff, if anything, the only way they would really bully me is like if I walked by and they were speaking English, they would suddenly start speaking Chinese. And that was just kind of more of an annoying inconvenience where like I knew they were doing it, but it didn't really hurt me in the end. Yeah, that's awesome. That's That's so cool. So was this also in Florida where you were growing up? It was. Yeah, it was in Orlando. Orlando is, uh, they had built like a brand new Buddhist temple um, and things like that. So, and that Buddhist summer camp was always held there. A lot of the people kind of crossed over. A lot of the people who went to that temple also went to that summer camp. So I saw a lot of them around all the time um, and made lifelong friends. I'm still, you know, Facebook friends or in-person friends with a lot of the people that I grew up with going to this Buddhist summer camp. So we're actually quite close, which is really nice. That's awesome. So growing up, you had a pretty heavily musically influenced lifestyle. You played the violin and you went to Boston Conservatory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Berklee College of Music and Boston Conservatory have a partnership um, where they share, you know, funds and student body and things like that. Um, one is classically based and one is kind of more pop music business um, kind of based. But yeah, no, it was my whole childhood. Um, everything that I did was surrounded by music and influenced by music in some way. And this is the first time in my life where that's no longer the case. So I'm just trying to figure it out, take some time off from violin and figure out where it's new places in my life. Yeah, that's awesome that you were able to shift to something else as well. So tell us a little bit about your move from Florida to Boston, two very different areas, both politically, socially and climate as well. I can imagine it was very cold. It was well welcomed. I had no intention of applying in Florida. I think I applied to USF, um, but I really didn't have much of an intention to go there. I decided if I had gotten into literally anywhere else in the country, I would have gone. Um, I just wanted to find people that not necessarily were only like-minded. I've met a lot of people here in Boston where we have differing opinions and beliefs, um, but at least here I find that people are open to talking about them. Considering Boston is such a melting pot of different cultures and people, a lot of people in college were willing to get together and talk things out and have really hard conversations, which I had never been able to really have freely before because it was kind of like all versus one at home. So I kind of kept my mouth shut and tried to blend into the background. Um, and I just became a lot more assertive in college. I found out who I was. I took some parts of myself that I, you know, 
parts of my personality from Florida that I figured out needed to kind of be altered. Some of my mindsets, you know, things that I wasn't, you know, as liberal as I may be, still wasn't fully up to date on. I became a lot more, I guess you could say, PC in a way, um, more so than I already am, especially hearing um, experiences from those that, you know, these things like Black Lives Matter and, you know, trans lives matter and things like that, hearing it from the people that it affects most, because I wasn't surrounded by people who really belong to any kind of minorities, um, or at least felt comfortable enough to speak about them in public back at home. So it was really nice to just kind of come to a place where everyone is so welcoming uh, for the most part and open to those kinds of conversations. Yeah, so you grew up in an area that's not as diverse as Boston. I guess you still have that Buddhist temple, but you experienced or you did experience people who are transitioning to college and things like that. So did that affect your identity at all when it came to being an Asian American? Honestly, I think by the time I got to college, I had at least figured my Asian identity out. Um, There's still times where it gets to me. I've had one person in particular make some really nasty comments to me about, you know, my adoption. And it was the kind of thing where like in high school, I had learned to blow it off or I just, you know, didn't think about it. And so it really shocked me when I came across a person who would, you know, say the kind of things that they were saying to me. And it hit me hard because it was stuff that I hadn't been faced with, with a you know, in a while, things that I didn't think that by the time we got to college, people would dare ever say to anybody. Um, So that was definitely hard to deal with, even though by the time I got to college, I was firmly, you know, secure in who I am and my identity. And even though I've had insecurities about being adopted, I have always been more than happy to share my story. I've always been open about it. I've always felt comfortable talking about it. Um, I'm very much an open book when it comes to my adoption and honestly, nothing's hidden. And I feel like it's much better for people to if they're curious in, you know, an honest way to be able to educate them and like I would with anything else in, in terms of, you know, things that are okay to say or why certain things are hurtful or just like an overall experience for being adopted. I know I had a lot of teachers when I was younger who wanted to know a little bit more about adoption and my mom would talk to them and some of them ended up adopting children from China. Um, yeah, my, my old art teacher ended up adopting two daughters from China. Um, because she had me in her class and it just kind of opened up this world of possibilities and conversation. And I think that was really great. That's, that's so cool. I love hearing, and I really appreciate you coming on here. I, I remember when we were talking and you were telling me how you're an open book and I really appreciate everything and your perspectives because it's so interesting to talk to people from all around the U S experiencing all these different types of transitions that they've had so we've talked about how the Boston Conservatory, you worked with DNI, um, that means diversity and inclusion, or the college itself has worked with diversity and inclusion, and you've also worked as an RA. So what was that like? It was a good experience. I think it even, you know, it amplified my ability to get to know all these other identities even more so just because we did a lot of diversity and inclusion work as RAs. I met students from all walks of life. And it really puts you in a position where not only do you come across all these different people and all these different identities um, as you would as a student, but it puts you in a position where you truly can't judge, at least not outwardly. It really makes you stop and think because when a student comes to you and says, hey, I'm having this issue or like, hey, I don't know how to come out to my family or things like that. 
you know, or someone says, hey, I've been assaulted. Like, there are things where you just kind of have to take a step back and be like, you can't have that immediate reaction of like, oh my God, or whatever. You kind of have to look at every identity as an equal identity and equally as valid and understanding that people are coming from all kinds of walks of life. And I heard an analogy once that, you know, everyone's life is like a puzzle piece and people spend their whole lives piecing these puzzles together. And so when you meet new people, you can't suddenly expect, you know, that they're going to rearrange their whole puzzle just to fit the puzzle you've been working on. Everyone is each their own individual project. Um, and that you just have to kind of take them as it as they come. Um, so I think that was good for me so that I learned to embrace a lot of different identities in ways that I hadn't before in a purely non-judgmental way. Um, it broke down a lot of stereotypes too, you know, because coming from the South, as much as I try to be in the right, everybody makes mistakes. And, you know, I've had things that I've thought where I look back at it and like, I can't believe I thought that, you know, um, after having conversations with people in college and having conversations with other RAs and things like that. And I think it's so much more productive when, you know, they would take us to retreats and RA camps and things like that, where we would just sit together and have an entire weekend just talking about diversity and inclusion. Um, and it makes you take a really tough look at it, not only at other people and other identities, but at yourself, you know, and so we did a lot of projects where it's like, draw an iceberg and at the tip of the iceberg, what are things that people notice most about you, say my features or the fact that I'm Asian, that I'm adopted, I'm pretty open about it, people meet me and they know off the bat. Um, and then what's beneath that iceberg, all the parts of your identity and the intersectionalities that influence who you are. Um, so it was, it was good. I had actually, until I got to college, even though I was comfortable in my identity, hadn't given it as much of a thought um, in a broad sense as when I was like forced to sit down and do so, which I think was really helpful. I really like that analogy, the puzzle piece and how everyone's unique in their own ways. Um, so I guess going off of that, what is advice that you would give to someone who's in a similar position, whether they moved from a southern area to a less diverse area compared to where they were or are now in a big city, just in general, someone who's in a place that's different than where they grew up? I would say be open. Be open and be kind. I think you will never, ever go wrong by being respectful to a person. You don't always have to agree and you can talk it out and agree to disagree. But at the end of the day, having mutual respect for one another and just being kind in the way that we speak to one another um, is really imperative to creating just a better community um, amongst our generation. I feel like if, especially with politics the way they are now, I feel like things are so left or right, you're this or you're that. Um, and I find if you're willing to sit down with your friends and people who don't agree with you, um, they're much more likely to listen to you because they know you. And so if instead of coming from a place of attack, we come from a place of uh, understanding and just knowing that when you go from a southern state or, or anywhere, or even, you know, from the United States to a different country, understanding that they've done a whole lot of learning their whole lives. And some of them, and yourself included, might have to do a whole lot of unlearning. And that's totally okay. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you were terrible. It doesn't mean you're racist forever. It just means that you know, there's work to be done. And as long as you put in that work and you put in the effort and you're respectful to the people that you come across, then you're making yourself a better person and in turn, you know, the world a better place. Yeah, I've been hearing that a lot, the process of unlearning and how it's okay to change your point of view and things like that. And so I guess I really like that perspective and how I guess so 
going into my next question. So is there anything that you wish that you could have done differently or that you wish you knew before your transition to the Boston Conservatory? Honestly, I think it worked out the way that it should have. I'm a firm believer in that everything that happens happens for a reason. I think I luckily I homeschooled my junior and senior year of Uh, high school just so that I could practice as much as I could uh, to really chase after those dreams of getting into a really good conservatory. And in doing so, I was no longer surrounded by toxic people or people who were judging me. I was at home with the people who accepted me the most above all else. Um, And so I did a lot of subconscious self-searching. I became a much more confident person. So by the time I got to college, I was like pretty set, pretty grounded um, in who I was. And it wasn't like I had to go through this huge transformation. Um, I think it would have been a lot different if I had been raised in like a really conservative family or a really religious household. I think it would have been a little more startling and a lot more hard for me to open up and do some of that unlearning. Um, but I think it was good. It, it came in strides and you know, you come in freshman year and you make a certain group of friends and then they leave and you move on, you meet new people, you join new clubs, make new experiences for yourself and things like that. And I feel like as that happened, um, new experiences happened to open up for me and therefore new life lessons as well. So I think it happened nicely and incrementally. And it wasn't just like, you're in Boston now and don't forget to be super PC. And like, you got to slap your socialist stickers on everything you know it was it was a good slow transition in in the way that I think it should have been learning and talking with the people that are closest to me yeah that's awesome and so now transitioning to where you are now you just graduated from the Boston Conservatory congratulations and now you're heading off to Northeastern University so still in the Boston area but now you're studying public relations so that's a different track than what you were pursuing earlier so what inspired you to do that Especially coming from, you know, this mindset of just what you say matters, the way that you say it matters. And especially being someone who was bullied, even, you know, by people who weren't intending to say harmful things or didn't realize the things that they were saying were not necessarily okay or made me feel a certain type of way. Um, it makes it made me really realize on a personal level, no matter how small or how big, like the way we say things matters. And so, you know, with concert stopping and things like that, um, amongst COVID, I love violin no less than I did, you know, the whole rest of my life. It's the love of my life. I will always be connected to it. It will always be a massive part of my identity. But there are a lot of violinists in this world. There are a lot of very talented and inspiring violinists. Um, and so I'm like, I'll take a back seat. <laughs> you know, there's there's something else that I can do. I would love to write grants for nonprofits to help those orchestras along, especially since a lot of them have lost most of their revenue and their audiences um, from in-person concerts. Um, but I'd like to work for a corporation. I'd like to work for a corporation that idealistically um, stands for a lot of the things that I stand for so that I can, in good conscience, you know, put their messages out to the public and just understanding, again, you know, everybody makes mistakes, even the best of corporations, the most PC of YouTubers and everything like that. Word spreads like wildfire. Somebody says something they shouldn't have or they say it in the way that they shouldn't have. And all of a sudden, all these people that are in crisis management and PR are trying to fix it and cover it up. And they didn't mean that. And I think being able to go into a situation in which I can say, hey, look, you made a mistake, but I'm not going to judge you for it 
but we're going to do everything we can to fix this in a non-performative way in order to genuinely incorporate some of that unlearning. Hopefully, you know, from the top down. Uh, that's something that I, I would love to do. I would love to work for, you know, something like a dot teen program or something like that so that, you know, I can, I can get the message out there and, and help people, especially now that brands are um, branching out onto social media more and they're getting more invested in things that aren't just their own brand. You know, Hollister didn't necessarily used to always do pride. Um, and, you know, there are organizations that didn't always used to donate to the Trevor Project or Black Lives Matter or Trans Lives Matter. Um, and so navigating that is kind of a new thing. Social media is blown up. Um, so with that being up and coming, I'd love to be part of that and be part of a movement and something a bit bigger. It's great that you have so many different passions that you can integrate into what you're studying and everything like that. And so I know you're still in your beginning stages of Northeastern University, but we were talking earlier about your plans after grad and maybe what some of your career aspirations are. So you're not looking to move back down south. <laughs> but um, I love New Your family's in New Orleans. I love New Orleans. I just visited a few weeks ago. Um, but you're looking to move to Europe. So why the switch? I've always loved Europe. I attended a music festival when I was 15 I in Italy, and I spent five weeks in Europe uh, touring nine different countries, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And both my parents, my mom was born in Cuba, and my dad is Italian-Irish, and so, you know, they, they also come from a place of, like, yes, America is an amazing country, but there are other countries that have a lot to offer, especially in the grand scheme of culture and in classical music and things like that. Um, the US has definitely made a mark of its own <laughs> in terms of music and arts and culture, but Europe kind of really approaches it in a whole different way, as they would. They're an entirely different place, an entirely different culture with an entirely different set of people um, and ways of life. Um, and I also think just because I'm launching myself straight into my master's after my undergrad and then straight into a profession right after my master's, it kind of takes away the whole like exploring in your 20s. So if I can integrate that into work while also doing something uh, to better myself and to better a brand and things like that, why not? That's really cool. And I love how you have the support of your parents too. Fully. They sent me to Finland my freshman year of college and my dad was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I love that. So talking about adoption and your parents and looking at things from more of a whole rather than where you are now, what advice slash words of advice would you have for parents who are looking to adopt? Maybe even parents who are looking to adopt into an area that's not as diverse or maybe has as much Asian American influence? Mm. I would say accept your children however they come because my mom kind of described it once as like I was like this gift with multiple layers like when they hide boxes inside of boxes you really don't know what you're gonna get from the physical to the emotional to the mental health side of things you truly don't know what you're getting and so you have to be ready to face all of those things and there are some people like myself who are so open to talking about their adoption and so gung-ho about making conversation about it and open about it and okay with it. And there are people that are genuinely okay living their lives as they do, not thinking about it too much or not talking about it too much. It's in the past for them. Um, I know for my sister, she 
exists. She's like, this is my life now and it is what it is. She doesn't ignore the fact that she's adopted, but she's totally okay just living her life as it is now. Um, and my parents have done a great job of accepting both of those things. Anytime I ever wanted to have a conversation and from a very young age about talking about why I'm adopted and how it makes me feel and, you know, even allowing me the space to talk about my birth parents and a yearning for wanting to know them and to have them in my life, especially as I'm passing these milestones. Like, I'm graduating college. Is my birth mother out there? Does she ever think about me? Like, I'm probably the first person in my family, in my biological family, to ever go to college. So it's something on my graduation day that was bittersweet for me. You know, I turned 21. That's a big mile marker here in the U.S. And that's something where I'm like, every birthday that I have, does she remember? Does she think about it? Um, but my sister, she doesn't think about it too much. She went to an adopt teen uh, program. She had a good time. She loved it. And some people also, you know, will resent it. I've met people who don't want to be affiliated with Asian culture, who want to put it all behind them, want to blend in as much as possible. And as long as you're supportive of your children and to their needs um, and open to have those conversations, I feel like if you're going to adopt a child, whether it be from China or anywhere else, you have to be ready for what might come with it. You know, you're going to have to have the conversation at some point, <laughs> um, whether they're older and you just don't tell them because they can blend in and fit in with your family or whether they let you know right off the bat. I used to have children's books about being adopted. Um, and so just being able to have those without judging your children or without feeling hurt and knowing that, you know, I'm very appreciative of the fact that my mom never said, well, why do you think you're bi about your biological mother? Like, I'm your mom. Like, I'm here now. Like, she allowed me to feel exactly how I wanted to feel and talk to her about those things. And if anything, it's brought us closer because my mom doesn't see my biological mother as like a threat. She's this woman who gave, you know, her, her child, this person who she always reassured me. She's like, you don't know for certain, but I can guarantee that she loved you very much and that she did what she thought was right for you. And now you're in a place where you can do amazing things. Um, and, and that's the best advice I would ever offer is just let them be exactly who they want to be. I I love that advice so much. And I just love how supportive your parents are and have been. And so you've given a lot of great advice so far from your perspectives and experiences. So this one is kind of a loaded question, but what advice do you have for adoptees who were or are in a similar situation to what you were in when you were younger and growing up with bullying and just, you know, trying to figure out what their identity is and then transitioning into a new area? I guess maybe focusing on the younger part just because we talked a lot about college transition transitioning so far. Yeah. Um being okay with the fact that it'll it might take time. Um I can say that I've come a very, very long way from where I was. If I could go back to six-year-old Jade and tell me, you know, you're gonna be totally okay. You're gonna be confident in who you are, you're gonna be confident in adoption, you're gonna wanna be on an adoptee, you know podcast you're gonna want to speak about your experiences I literally would have just laughed at you and been like huh that's funny I would love to blend into the background be named Caitlin and be blonde and have blue eyes uh because that's exactly what I wanted I had a cousin who was the epitome of the American girl and that's the, all that I thought was beautiful and okay and it's all I ever wanted to be um and just allowing yourself the room to grow allow yourself the room and the space to be sad to reflect because there's a lot of 
there can be a lot of, you know, painful feelings and internal doubt and, and things like that, that come with it. And those are totally okay. It doesn't mean that you are weak or that you, um, aren't just good as a person or you're not a good adoptee for accepting exactly like why aren't I okay with it like I should be I'm great I have a better life like I should be thankful like you can take a second and be not okay um and to give it some really in-depth thought because when you look at it even though like I was adopted at a very young age I was adopted at eight months old um and I've already carried around a lot of internal trauma and baggage and stereotypes that have been placed on me like I can't imagine or speak from an experience of someone who's been through the Chinese foster system or, you know, whose parents are, you know, adopted them because they wanted to, I guess, sometimes I've heard it as like the savior complex, which I hate saying, um, you know, being like, we rescued you and, and things like that. Um, I think everyone has their own reasons for adopting and I think all of them are valid. Um, but yeah, just being okay with the fact that you're going to grow. And I'm sure if I look, you know, farther into future, 10 years down the line, like I've thought about it, if I want to have biological ch children or if I want to adopt them and uh, how I'll have those conversations. I'm currently in a relationship and, you know, my partner, if I talked about it and he's like, well, you know, adoption's fine, but like, I'd prefer to have my own biological child. Like I know even though he's so accepting of me being adopted and understands it and knows where I'm coming from, I think there is a little bit of hesitation knowing that a lot of people that are adopted have a lot to figure out and a lot to process and that's totally okay and it's hard for someone who's never had to be through that or has never seen that in its full capacity throughout the years and years and years that it takes to figure out oneself um but that's a little bit scary and so i've thought about that like i don't ever want to push my thoughts and my opinions um of adoption and how i feel about it onto a child that I've maybe said, say adopted. Um, I don't wanna try to make my experience their experience because every single experience is gonna be entirely different. Every person is entirely different. So you just can't, can't expect that, but um, yeah. Thank you so much. I love hearing all the different words of wisdom and perspectives that people have on their adoption because everyone comes from such different backgrounds and it's really hard to just pigeonhole your advice into a broad audience out there. So I guess my last question is, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, not too much, just other than, you know, at least for me, I see my adoption as a gift, like a second chance, you know, um, I don't want to waste it. I have always tried to be the best that I can at everything that I do. And I love to multitask. I love to be a busy bee. Um, and deep down somewhere, it's, I'm trying to prove myself. I'm trying to say, hey, I've been given this wonderful chance. I have more resources than I could have ever imagined. I carry a lot of privilege on my shoulders and I want to do something with that. And I want to, you know, make sure that it's worthwhile um, and that I'm doing something and that I'm grateful and always thankful for the family that I have um, and the opportunities that I've had, the amazing friends that I've made and the conversations that I've been able to have and the bits, you know, the ability and the space to mold my identity exactly the way that I've wanted to do so. Um, but yeah, that being adopted can be all kinds of things and make you feel all kinds of things, but in the end, it's all okay and it'll piece itself together. Um, and that there's always the someone there for you. There always is, you know, even I find that adoption is this really strong bond, whether or not you know it. 
um, I've gone to two adoptees and it's so nice because those adoptee programs, I don't know if you've ever been to one, you really don't spend much time talking about adoption. You know, one of them was held in Orlando and we went to Universal and we had water balloon fights and we just had a lot of fun because, you know, the big like, oh my God, you're adopted was out of the way. We had this common, you know, all of our stories were different and unique and, and shaped who we are. But in the end, we were a team. And I find that even though some of these girls I only met for a couple days years ago, we're still good friends. We still shout out at each other on Instagram being like, hey, you are amazing. Congrats on graduating. You're doing amazing things. And we support each other, honestly, more than a lot of the people that, you know, I was friends with in high school just because it's it's this common bond where you understand that, um, you know, you you started somewhere, but you have all the power in the world to make your adventure exactly what you want it to be. And your adoption doesn't define you, though it can be a huge part of your identity. Thank you so much once again, Jade, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I always say this, I know, I said it earlier about every person that comes on this podcast, but it's just everyone is so eloquently spoken and so passionate about what they talk about and that was really my main goal here was to just help amplify adoptee voices so thank you so much jade for coming on i really appreciate it like i said before we're coming up on our one year anniversary which is crazy to think about and it's even crazier to think about how jade was telling me and how her mom found this podcast on spotify and I just, I don't know, I'm just a 21-year-old girl sitting in her childhood bedroom trying to make some sort of difference. So I really appreciate every single listener, wherever you are. Um, I really can't thank you enough. I'll probably be doing something for my one year. Um, but we're still putting that in the working, in the making, because I am also a 21-year-old girl. Um, but once again, thank you so much, Jade, for coming on. I really just, everything that she said, I really took to heart, and I hope you did as well. So until next time, this was Made in China-ish, the podcast. I'm Grace, and I'll see you then. See ya.